Bitcoin kind of solves all these problems that they're trying to do in a better way. Uh, but they just want to they just want to maintain their control and the, the centralized control. And obviously, Bitcoin is decentralized and nobody can control it. So they're kind of ignoring it or slandering it while they build these really uh, these tools of censorship and control. And uh, it should worry everybody. It should really it should really worry everybody. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Sam Callahan from Swan. Sam, welcome. What's up, Joe? Thanks for having me on. Excited yeah. to uh, excited to chat. Chat. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to be a super great conversation. Obviously, big fans of the work that you guys do at Swan. Swan Signal is, is fantastic. Um, so I think this is going to be a good good conversation. Uh, let's jump jump in with kind of macro and Bitcoin overall. Um, yeah. Like we're recording this on February 8th, we'll put it out soon after this. Um, what are your like overall thoughts on like what's going on from a macro situation? And then like, how does that tie into, I guess, Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say I'm, I'm still kind of bearish. Um, you know, to me, this looks a lot like a, like a bear market rally in terms of like the viciousness of that rally across all assets. Like we had, just for example, like we've had... Uh, you know, Bed Bath and Beyond rally like ninety percent in one day. You know, Tesla rallying like crazy. All these kind of meme stocks were bouncing. There's like extremely oversold. Um, had a lot of like short covering happening into January as well. Um, and this is what happens in bear markets. You just get these like rip roaring rallies, and um, that's what it feels like to me. Because when I look at the macroeconomic indicators, I mean, there's not a lot to be uh, optimistic about. To be honest with you. Um, and for me, I just think that this interest rate hiking cycle, it just takes time. Like there's a lag, um, for the economy to kind of feel those higher borrowing costs. And, um, we just haven't really felt that. Like we've seen it start to trickle into more interest, uh, rate sensitive sectors like housing and autos in, in Q4, you saw the prices start to fall across those sectors. Um, uh, but it just takes time for, for these things to kind of start to impact, uh, businesses and demand in the economy. And then everyone points to the labor market about how strong it is, like whether or not you actually believe in the validity of that data or not, you know, you can point to that and be like, that's really strong, but usually that's the last shoe to drop, right? So if these businesses aren't feeling uh, these uh, higher interest rates, um, then they're not going to be laying off people, but that should take time. And um, I don't know when that exactly will be. It's anyone's guess. I, I do think there's a recession ahead, but I'm not saying it's going to be like a depression. Like that's the thing that people maybe disagree on is like people think this is going to be like, the worst thing ever, but we could have like a more mild recession. Um, but it would be the first time ever uh, that a hiking cycle didn't end in some kind of recession. And you look across all these macroeconomic indicators um, you know, you look at the yield curve and like the steepest inversion, and that's been a historically accurate predictor of recessions. Um, you look at like kind of retail sales starting to fall off. You look at new orders in, in PMIs that have been rolling over and contracting. Um, and, and those are just a few of them, right? You can kind of look across the board. And, and I think that will matter. I think fundamentals do matter eventually. Um, but right now we're in this like rally, right? And Bitcoin's just a part of that. It's been a you know great start to the year, up forty percent. Um, you know, Bitcoin's an interesting asset because it kind of like leads other assets. And so, and we saw a lot of selling. We saw a lot of like endogenous 
um, you know, frauds in the industry itself kind of impact the price, um, you know, differently compared to other asset classes, like with the FTX fiasco and all those other Ponzi schemes that blew up this year. Um, so, you know, it's possible that, you know, Bitcoin bottomed um, in October. Some people think it even bottomed in, in June. And if you actually look at Bitcoin's chart, it, there was capitulation, uh, capitulation candles in June. Like there was huge red capitulation candles in June around Three Arrows Capital and after the Luna collapse. Um, and then it kind of went sideways for a really long time, just kind of chopped around. I'm sure you follow it as well as an analyst. And then um, in October, we had the FTX kind of capitulation candle, but it wasn't nearly as bad as the ones in June, uh, if you actually look at it. And so um, could this be... Could we have already bought them in Bitcoin? Like, I don't rule that out at all, uh, especially the fact that it's like a leading indicator or leading asset, I would say, um, compared to kind of equities or any other ones. Um, but, you know, I look at the macro picture and it, it, it is hard for me to, uh, you know, I'm just cautious um, about this rally and, and I'm prepared for it to kind of retest the lows. And in, if that's the case, then I think it would be a great buying opportunity. So that's kind of how I see see the macro picture right now. Yeah, no, I think that was a very good approach, good perspective. Also, I just moved my mic, so if I'm yelling in your ear, let me know. Um, no, you're but, good. You're good. Awesome. Um, but yeah, no, I think you talked about summer of 2022 being this kind of like capitulation period. Totally agree. I mean, thinking back to when I've experienced Bitcoin cycles, like late 2018, early 2019 was pretty like gut-wrenching, just grinding yeah. around at 3K. And then March 2020, like when we just wicked into 3K, like that was pretty gut wrenching. <laughs> yeah. And then the summer of 2022 probably wasn't like the same degree as March 2020, but it was still like I remember like watching the price and I was like, wow, like this is pretty pretty intense. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I kind of agree. Like those are kind of all on the same levels. And now we've just been grinding, you know, around 20K for months and months now. It's pretty crazy. So I guess yeah. going back to the, your macro perspective. Are you like a believer at all? I guess kind of what what you were saying earlier. You're not. You're kind of bearish, at least in the short to medium term, potentially, um, yeah. or at least you know somewhat. Anything. This is Bitcoin. Anything could happen. But um, right, right. Do you do you believe in like the soft landing idea, or do you think that's kind of complete nonsense? I, like I said, I think fundamentals matter, and you know we we had the fastest rate hiking cycle. Uh, one of them in history, at least like the top two or three. Um, and, and it just takes time for, like I said, for that to kind of trickle through into the economy. It, the soft landing, somebody, I think Michael Cantro is a follow on, on Twitter. And he, he tracked down all these headlines of like last time before uh, the global financial crisis in 2008. And then before 2000, the dot-com bubble, he tracked down all these headlines that it was the exact same conversation, right? It was talking about, is this a soft landing? Bernanke is a genius. He did a soft landing in 2007. And here we are just like repeating the same narrative about it being a soft landing. And of course, in those uh, periods of the past, it did not turn out to be a soft landing at all. And this would be the first time ever uh, that a, a hiking cycle didn't end in some kind of recessionary period. And... Um, so, you know, for, for me, that would be betting on something that's never happened before. Um, it's possible with, like, the liquidity that's been pumped into the system. Like, who knows? Like, it, there is so much liquidity, and I think that's kind of part of the reason why we're still seeing asset prices where they are. Um, and can they get buoyed for longer? I mean, we haven't seen that amount of 
injection before just the, the sheer size. I mean, it was just insane. It was whatever, almost $5 trillion um, since, since 2020. Um, and so we're kind of in a new paradigm in that way. And so that could possibly allow us to do a, you know, soft landing quote unquote, but color me spectacle. I, I am extremely uh, skeptical of that. And um, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what the fed does, but um, I, I just, I, I see that as a low probability, but it's, it's always a probability it's possible, but, um, it's not my base case at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's you definitely make a good argument for why like something like that could ha- could not happen. Um, it's very interesting. I've, I think I heard this a few months ago from like maybe Lynn Alden originally and like someone, some people picked it up for a little bit and then some people like just kind of forgot about it, I guess. She was talking about how like people, or at least like the Fed, is maybe looking for unemployment to rise, and that's kind of a sign that hey, like they need to relax, like things are starting to get kind of bad, uh, just for people like having actual jobs. But then she pointed out that like hey, what's the difference between like laying off five percent of your workforce or giving five percent of your workforce a, a or giving a hundred percent of your workforce a five percent w- real wage cut, right? So that's kind of some extent is what happened. Like if you didn't get a, you know, 7% raise over the past 18 months or so, you got a real wage cut because your dollars that you're receiving for your job are not going as far as they did, you know, a year or two ago. Do you buy into that idea at all? That like, that's kind of one of the reasons that we haven't seen a huge spike in the unemployment rate that people just got real wage cuts and they, they kind of like inabruptly like took the, took the hit. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, um, you know, those, those real wage losses are permanent, you know, they're never coming back and they can certainly, um, kind of have the same impact as rising unemployment because it impacts people's spending in the real economy, right? If they can't, uh, if their paycheck's not going as far, you know, you have lower discretionary spending, um, in the economy. And so it's similar to kind of people losing their income, uh, to unemployment. And I think the unemployment rates, uh, really interesting because, you know, to me, it's like a shrinking workforce, not necessarily that everything's healthy. You know, we had, uh, I think there's still 2.5 million or 3.5 million workers that are missing from the start of the pandemic. You had a ton of baby boomers retire. And I think a lot of that was due to the fact that uh, they own a lot of houses and assets and they felt wealthy enough to retire finally. They, or they were just like piecing out in the pandemic being like, all right, I think I'm ready to go. Like I'm going to go to a beach during this or something. Um, and so whether or not like the economy is actually healthy is a different story. I mean, they talk about the labor force participation rate and how it's pretty much unchanged um, from the start of the year. You have those missing workers and that matters more long-term. Um, but, you know, I think they are looking at the unemployment rate for, for better or worse. And um, they talked about how tight the labor market is still. Um, and that could have wage pressures, which keeps inflation stickier. Um, right now, they say there's there's two job openings for every one person that's looking to be employed in America. Um, and so I think when anybody says the Fed will pause or cut, um, they should understand that that's only going to happen if something really bad happens and we start to have a you know, spike in unemployment um, and a lot of layoffs and slowing economic growth. And then usually when they when they cut or, or pivot, so to speak, um, asset prices fall pretty heavily after that. You know, they, they bottom not like while it's being cut, they usually cut and then asset prices still fall pretty heavily. 
um, until they bottom. And so I think people maybe don't understand that because they think, oh, they're going to pivot and everything's going to just like immediately shoot up. But you got to understand that if they were to start cutting, things would be looking pretty bleak, I think, in the economy because their credibility is so low right now, man. I mean, think about what would happen if the Fed cut like it would just be bananas. So maybe maybe things would shoot up because people are just like they are all waiting for it. Right. And this is what they've created. They created this like dependence on central bank intervention. Um, and and we'll see when they cut. It's just going to get wild because, you know, they've been talking like this jawboning about how strong they are and how they're going to they've done it. They've started hiking rates. You know, I think it's just a temporary period of the Fed trying to regain credibility. But we all know where this is going to go eventually, whether that's in six months, a year, two years, even like we'll see how far they can go. But eventually uh, this debt problem, I think, is going to you know come to the forefront and they're going to have to do what they've been doing every single time when when things get a little uh, sticky for them. They'll uh, go back to their you know QE and, and money printing um, to try to stimulate their way out of this problem again, kick the can down the road, if you will. So. That's kind of how I see it, man. Uh, you know, right now unemployment's still low, but if we do see it start to rise, if we say get to five percent, you know, I think the Fed will start to like think about things, and I think uh, people, you know, sentiment in the economy will kind of start to hit new all-time lows when that happens as well. Yeah, I mean, I definitely firmly agree that the end game is turning the money printer back on, monetary and fiscal stimulus, and Bitcoin mm -hmm. is obviously going to rally big time when that comes around yeah. just a matter of timing um yep. i do want to dive into i know you've been doing research or on this grayscale and gbtc what are your thoughts yep. on you know big picture overall what's been going on there yeah um i mean for anyone who doesn't know there's just been a whole mess with with like intercompany loans between dcg and genesis and as well as gemini um, Gemini Earn users um, basically have almost $900 million of funds um, frozen that they can't withdraw at Genesis. And uh, Genesis eventually uh, declared bankruptcy. And now they've actually come up with a deal. So I think it's actually pretty positive what's happening um, with that whole situation. I think there's a lot of FUD and fear around, you know, the GBTC trusts, how much Bitcoin's in there. And it, it potentially hitting the market one day and then that affecting Bitcoin's price. But, you know, to me, there seems like a lot of avenues that could actually be positive um, for GBTC shareholders who are suffering right now at like a 50, almost 50 percent discount. Um, and either that in a DCG uh, bankruptcy or the fact that they had they would have to raise uh, cash, they could potentially um, sell that the trust to a different sponsor or the trust could be forced to be moved to a different sponsor because of mismanagement of the trust. Um, and in that case, if it moved to a different sponsor, they could lower the fee. Um, they could also allow redemptions, which would close that discount pretty rapidly. Um, and so I'm pretty like positive on that whole situation. I've always said that the most positive thing would be for um, you know the, the parties involved to come up with a deal and a restructuring agreement. And that's what we saw happen this week. Um, and now they expect to uh, creditors expect to get like 80 percent on the dollar right now. And there's a path towards getting 100 percent on the dollar, which is kind of amazing when you consider everything that happened. Um, and so you, you have DCG now selling their shares of GBTC and their other trusts 
And they're doing that to raise cash. And they're doing that because they had a short-term loan due May 2023, $575 million. Um, and now it's been restructured so that when they pay that back, it goes straight to creditors. So that, that's been restructured in the bankruptcy courts. And so they're raising money because they have to pay that. And um, they're doing that to, to sell those shares. But the problem is that there's liquidity issue because there's Rule 144A where they can only sell 1% of the outstanding shares sold because they're the issuer of that security. And so they can only sell 1%, but they're do, they are selling it. So th what that will do is that will affect the actual share prices and probably widen that, that GBTC discount in the, in the short term um, as they kind of liquidate to raise cash to pay, pay their debts, essentially. Um, but but the Bitcoin price, you know, it, I, I don't see those Bitcoins ever hitting the market. I, I, like personally, I think there's a very low probability of that. And um, it's really just like the GBTC shareholders that are still kind of caught in the crosshairs of all this. Um, and hopefully things kind of work out better for them in the future, too. Yeah, I mean, it's a definitely an interesting situation. I mean, looking back at like the history of GPTC, it, it always traded at like a pretty solid premium, like a massive premium. So you were buying yeah. like, you know, Bitcoin, like if Bitcoin is 20K, you were buying at like 30K or even 40K at times, which is pretty yeah. crazy, um, at least for like what was contained like within the trust. Do you think that that premium will ever come back? I personally, I personally, I don't really think so. I don't, at least definitely not to that same extent. What are your thoughts? Do you think it'll come back at all ever? Like we get into a raging bull market. It's hard for me to say like the market, like structures change. Like there's just more options available now. And, um, you know, you have the, the pro shares ETF from the Toronto stock exchange that people flood to, and that's a better product with lower fees. You have the Osprey Bitcoin trust that has like a 0.49% management fee. Grayscale's, Two two percent, just extremely high, um, ridiculously high. That you can be very critical of Grayscale for that. Um, and so there's just different competition. Like some people use MicroStrategy as a proxy, um, and so there's just like different uh, options out there. And so it's hard for me to see how there would be that much demand for it because I think that's why it benefited so much in its in the days where it was uh, had a premium because it's one of the only ways to get exposure to Bitcoin in these tax advantaged accounts and like retirements, four hundred one ks. IRAs, things like that. Um, never say never, but yeah, it's really hard for me to see how that, that premium would come back. Um, especially what if they actually win the lawsuit against the SEC and then it, it gets converted to an ETF, then, you know, that premium will never come back because ETFs are traded. They keep stay at NAV. So yeah, it's hard for me to see that, man. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I think to me, it positions what you guys are building, Swan Custody, and another company that does, you know, similar unchained capital, it yeah. shows like the importance of why, you know, it's important to custody your Bitcoin because you could have been, you know, you could have bought Bitcoin at 30,000 when it was trading at 20,000 and now Bitcoin's at 20,000 and your GBTC is worth 10,000 per Bitcoin. So you just got totally destroyed on, on buying it and selling it. And now we have, you know, products like you guys are building where you can custody your Bitcoin pretty easily and, you know, no, yeah. Not, can you explain yeah, this, like, what you guys are building there? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I, so the Swan IRA product I think is pretty cool because, you know, obviously it's, it would be ideal if we could take self custody and hold what they call held away uh, with the asset. But there was this case called the McNulty case 
it's been a while since I read the details of it, but essentially this woman, I think in Utah, um, held away gold in, a, in an IRA account. So that means she took self-custody of the gold, let's say, physical gold, but it was still technically in this, uh, you know, it was kind of like a loophole. But in, during the McNulty case, they said that she couldn't do that. And since gold was considered a commodity, a lot of lawyers and stuff thought that was precedent. That meant that no longer could you do these like checkbook IRAs with Bitcoin. Because I actually did this myself. I held self-custody Bitcoin. But then after this McNulty case, uh, there's a risk there. you know. And so um, we built a product that's, that's custody um, and we think it's a really good one. But you can actually have exposure to the underlying Bitcoin in, in an IRA and actually hold real Bitcoin in an IRA as opposed to these proxies that have all these problems that we're now well aware of after GBTC. And, you know, we don't have to look at like a, a charter or something to know like who owns what or what rights you have. I mean, this is really simple product when it comes down to it, where you just hold, you know, Bitcoin in a trust under your name, doesn't move anywhere. Nobody can move it or access it. Uh, maybe in the future, we hope that we could have a similar situation where we could you know, allow them to take self-custody, but there's too much, uh, you know, uncertainty around that McNulty case to do that in a way that we think is responsible. Um, so that's kind of that product. And, you know, we, we recently acquired Spectre. Um, and, and so we're building out really cool custody solutions with them. You know, speaking with Moritz over there and their team, I, a couple of weeks ago, I jumped on a call just to kind of see what they're doing. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, our own multi-sig uh, product that we're building in-house and that should just help people uh, be able to take uh, self-custody as well, you know, outside of the IRR, IRA products. I mean, nothing nothing beats just taking self-custody of your coin. So that's why we focus so much on education. That's why we do, you know, free automatic withdrawals and, and things like that because, you know, the whole point of Bitcoin is to eliminate counterparty risk and take your own wealth into your own hands and be your own bank. So um, unfortunately with the IRA, we kind of have to follow certain rules um, but in terms of just in general, we hope like our new Spectre Swan custody products will just help people in, uh, you know, take self-custody in, in different ways that they feel comfortable with, essentially, because there's a whole spectrum of custody solutions is how I see it kind of uh, evolving over time with like Fetty Mints and multi-sig. And then there's like, you know, air gap, hardcore cypherpunk kind of thing. Um, but everyone's a little different in p kind of what they want to do in the custody. And, and I'm really bullish on custody developments in general in Bitcoin. I, I think it's been a great year for that. Yeah, I'm definitely very excited about, you know, the Swan Spectre acquisition. I think that's super awesome. And I think it's great for people to take self-custody of their Bitcoin, whether it's, you know, even if it's not part of an IRA, I think it's critical yeah. that you do that yeah. with your stack. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of research recently, or you told me you were on DCA versus lump sum buying. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, dude. <laughs> well, so... You know, one of our flagship products is our Bitcoin savings plans, and it's something I use. Like I just buy it. Every, I buy every day, and I just I, I like the peace of mind. I don't like to think about it. But we get a lot of questions from clients. We got a lot of them like sitting on the sidelines, waiting for dips, and they like to smash buy. Some like to set up Bitcoin savings plans. Some like to do a little bit of both. Um, so we have a we had a new CIO come on, uh, Rafa, and he. Um, he kind of ran this model and I worked with him and we were kind of digging into what's actually the better strategy historically. Is it lump sum or DCA and why, why might that be? And the results kind of surprised us because lump sum over the last five years outperformed DCA 51% uh, of the time. And um, I, I think that was kind of like, Oh, that's interesting because I kind of always thought DCA might, 
Um, and then it, it comes down to why that is. And the reason being is because if you look at Bitcoin's price history, it has these like really um, kind of like short, explosive movements upwards. And if you're on the sideline and you miss those, then, you know, you're kind of shit out of luck. And so with DCA, I mean, you're, you're not really like timing the market, but you are kind of timing the market because if you have extra cash, um, you know, and you're sitting on the sideline not deploying it, then you could potentially miss somebody, uh, some of these huge days compared to somebody who just lumps some all in. And so um, a lot of people DCA too, who just like earn as they go and they don't have extra DC, like money. So that's a little different. But if you have a, like amount of money, like 10,000, and you choose to lump some 5,000 and then slowly DCA the other 5,000, you are kind of timing the market. You're expecting it to go sideways or maybe down to lower your cost basis. And so if you look at like, um, here, wait, let me see if I could. So, okay, here. So if you look at like the 15 largest three-day periods um, from 2018 to 2023, so just in Bitcoin's uh, price history, the 15 largest three-day periods, um, the total return, if you miss those, those 15 three-day periods, the total return was minus 81% in a time period where the total return of Bitcoin increased 185%. So, you, so over the last like 1,800 days, if an investor was caught on the sideline for like 2.46% of those days, they, went to, they ended up losing money on Bitcoin at a time period where it tripled <laughs> in value. So like you cannot miss those days. And so it, 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 I think it like speaks to holding because like you and me probably have like held for a while. And it is kind of a hard thing to do. Like it's like a very like it's sideways for a lot of the time and it's chopping. And, but you, you kind of feel it because there are these like huge days and there's a saying in Wall Street where, you know, stocks are staircases on the way up and, you know, elevators on the way down, escalators. It's almost like the opposite in Bitcoin where there's like, it's just kind of stairs down and then it shoots up and then stairs down, shoots up. And so um, that's kind of what I felt too. And, and the data kind of confirms that. But there's an important point here. And even though lump sum, you know, technically outperforms, you have to think about the mental um, kind of stress of having your entire life savings like YOLO'd in essentially and then the volatility of Bitcoin, like can't, can't, cause the only strategy that matters is one that allows you to hold long-term. And so when you look at the average drawdowns uh, for each strategy or the max drawdowns, if you're a lump sum, you, you, you might've had to watch your uh, net worth on paper go down 80%. Like, can you hold through that volatility um, compared to somebody who has a, you know, DCA plan? You know, I think DCA plans have a peace of mind to it and prevent emotional decision-making and and prevents like panic selling essentially better than a lump sum strategy. So everyone has to just be comfortable with their own risk tolerance and see what strategy works for them. Um, and what, what makes them sleep at night, essentially, that's the important thing. Cause the only important thing is to hold long, long term, but it was interesting just to see those stats and, um, and see that lump sum is technically outperformed, uh, because of those like explosive days upwards. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is extremely volatile, right? It goes through these massive adoption cycles where everyone wants to buy more. And then it goes through these tough, strenuous bear markets where everyone's like panic selling at the bottom. And so, yeah, I yep. think you made a great point where you need to figure out your risk toler tolerance. You need to figure out like, do you understand Bitcoin? How well do you understand it? If it falls 80%, are you going to like 
be scared to add more? Are you going to be selling some or are you going to be like, you know, have a good proportion of your portfolio allocated, but not too much to where you're like kind of stressing out and worried like, Hey, like, is this a good spot for me to be in? Because in reality, you need to be stacking when, when, when the price is down 80%. Um, yeah. So I think he made some, some great points there. We definitely think about it very similar way with, with mining at Blockware, right? I mean, mining, you, you basically buy a mining rig, you DCA after yeah. you buy the mining rig. Um, it's kind of like the lump sum and then you DCA after that with your future cash flows. So yeah, I think it's, it's a great point and a lot of like synergies between those two ideas, I would yeah, say. Yeah, totally, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I also want to dive into your work on CBDCs. Um, like for people that don't know, maybe like what are CBDCs at a high level and then like how close are they to like being developed and implemented and should people be like concerned about, you know, uh, CBDCs being implemented and, and using them or being forced to use them, I guess, potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have done a lot of research in, in central bank digital currencies, and I do think people should be concerned because I think it's a threat to privacy and, and freedom more broadly. Um, you know, uh, CBDC is like a form of digital money that's a direct liability of the central bank um, that's directly available to the public. And this is different than other forms of digital fiat, let's say, where it's typically, you know, private money. It's it's created by commercial banks or, you know, non non-bank financial institutions, you know, like a PayPal or, you know, Venmo, Zelle. Um, and these have inherent liquidity and default risks, which people found out in the global financial crisis. Um, you know, those numbers on a screen, um, they come with default risk if it's a private company. Now, technically a CBDC wouldn't have those default and liquidity risks because they are a direct liability of the central bank and the central bank has access to a money printer. Um, thus, the rationale is that a CBDC would be a safer form of digital money um, than what's currently available for individuals in the marketplace and would lead to financial stability. And other like alleged benefits are like more efficient payments, um, more targeted monetary policy and improved financial inclusion but the reality is, is that the risks imposed by CBDC far outweigh any of these alleged benefits that are, uh, you know, reported by these central banks that are developing them. And, you know, a CBDC risk becoming a tool of surveillance and control uh, that can be abused by central banks and governments against the citizenry. Uh, CD a CBDC infringes on privacy and the fundamental rights of law-abiding citizens, you know, infringes on the Fourth Amendment. Um, it could also disintermediate commercial banks, leading to financial instability, expose the money itself to cyber attacks and data breaches. Um, it, it would actually create a more inefficient and expensive payment system and actually result in financial exclusion. And so when you actually dig into the, the research, um, you, you realize that the facts are just not with them when it comes to the CBDCs. But unfortunately, um, momentum for them in these central banks and international financial institutions have just accelerated rapidly. Um, since I'd say 2018, about 20% said that they're likely to issue a CBDC in the next five years. Um, fast forward to today, that number's jumped to 60%. And you have 90%, 95% of you know central banks or 95% of global GDP, like 114 countries are now uh, developing or exploring a central bank digital currency. 
And, um, you know, it's concerning. It's concerning to people and it's concerning to me because I just think it's like the dumbest idea ever. Like not just for the privacy and, and the surveillance and all that, you know, bad stuff, but just like the actual idea, it doesn't make any sense. Like it, all their reported benefits, it's the exact opposite. It would, it would really cause a lot of problems, which I think would ultimately be a boon to Bitcoin if they're so dumb that they actually launch these things. And so that's kind of a summary, um, but we can go in deeper if you want. Yeah, I mean, to me, the scary part about CBDCs is kind of like the privacy aspect and related to that, like the ability or for someone else or like the government or a central bank to put restrictions on like what you can actually do with your, your dollars or your CBDCs that you have. Like there's kind of a lot of comfort knowing that, Hey, I hold Bitcoin. It's the censorship resistant asset. I could yeah. have a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin on private keys that I can control. And I can send that to anyone in the entire world and no one can stop that transaction. Whereas if you have a CBDC, maybe they're going to be like, hey, you can only save $10,000 this month or this year, and you can only send a maximum $5,000. And it's like, if they're putting that those restrictions on your capital that you think you own, like, do you actually really own it? It's kind of like, probably not. Like, you kind of don't really own it. Bitcoin's, in, in a way, like the only thing that you can truly own in size. What are your thoughts on that? I think you nailed it, man. I think Bitcoin's freedom money is the diametrically opposed to what they're building with the CBDC and what you just said. I mean, it's not hypothetical like this. That is literally what they're building. Um, you know, I've dug in really deep to it and I've read all their designs and all their plans and they, they do expect to have limits built and programmed into it. And you got to understand this is at the technical level, at the token level, if they could just control money itself, just like think about that for a second of like having a switch to turn on and off your money. Um, it's just, it's kind of absurd when you think about how they think that this would be a better, more efficient payment system when it's filled with all these in, uh, restrictions and limits compared to Bitcoin, which is just free and open. Right. Um, and so when you look at it too, like people talk about how the programmability of a central bank digital currency would allow for things like negative interest rates, um, you know, hold limits, transaction limits, which are totally true, but you can take it a step further and this is what they say in terms of kind of programming social um, agendas into the money. And so, for instance, they've talked about um, having protections, quote unquote, programmed into the token, preventing spending on on certain age, like age restriction items. So like a child would have a CBDC account and they couldn't buy cigarettes or alcohol. Um, or another example would be services aimed at supporting those with mental health issues to manage their spending, like preventing them from pur making purchases on certain times of the day. And immediately what you should, your mind should go to is like, well, who's deciding who has mental health issues? You know, like who, who's deciding, oh, that person can't spend. It's very easy to see how this could be abused and be an infringement of rights when you have like protesters, say like the freedom truck truckers in Canada. Oh, those guys are crazy. Like those are, those are crazy. Let's cut off their money at the token level. Like, and that's literally what they say. Um, and so it's very, you know, you can see how a central bank digital currency could lead to a surveillance state, you know, worse than we're already in today, uh, kind of giving them granular control over the money and more concentration of power to, you know, what I call the central bank governmental complex. Um, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good, man, which is why 
I also just study it to raise awareness out of it so I could like pick apart their arguments, but also to raise awareness around how Bitcoin kind of solves all these problems that they're trying to do in a better way. Uh, but they just want to they just want to maintain their control and the, the centralized control. And obviously, Bitcoin is decentralized and nobody can control it. So they're kind of ignoring it or slandering it while they build these really uh, these tools of censorship and control. And uh, it should worry everybody. It should really it should really worry everybody. Yeah, I'm glad you've been talking about it a lot and, and writing about it because I, I agree it's extremely important. Um, and it's it is concerning because I think. You know, a lot of people don't really understand money and they also don't understand Bitcoin and they especially don't understand CBDC. So people have to mm -hmm. understand and know like the pros and cons to all of these things, all of these new technologies and like understand that like, hey, Bitcoin is freedom money. It's probably the best, you know, the best option that humanity has as a whole. And it's probably like what we're going to all converge on in the end. But in the short term, if people are very confused and don't understand what's necessarily happening, they may just comply and use certain CBDCs. Um, it, it reminded me of a conversation that I had with, with Luke Broyles, who's been putting out a lot of good threads mm -hmm. on Twitter. Um, and we had him on the Blockware podcast. A lot of the stuff that you were talking about, like how privacy and restrictions, I agree, like it could happen with CBDCs and it, it's like they're planning on doing it with CBDCs. But arguably, you know, governments can already clamp down on like what asset, like your, che your checking and savings account, right? They like, yeah. can put limits on that. Your bank can put limits on that. And even uh, Lou brought the, the point that, like, the FDIC, like, insures your bank account, uh, but they only have, like, 2% of the assets that they right. say they insure. So it's like even the money in your bank account might not actually be money that you own, <laughs> let alone yeah, CBDs totally. in the future. Totally, man. The FDIC thing's an interesting. They actually had to, like, refill their coffers a couple – I don't know if this was a couple of years ago, I think, but they basically had to, like, charge a – emergency fee on all the banks <laughs> to to refill the fdic coffers but they're basically the assumption there is that they don't expect all the banks to go under at the same time um and then what they can do is just like turn around to congress and be like hey we need more money and the money printer goes on and then the fdc fdic gets their you know get refilled if you will so it's all kind of you know it's like a ponzi or something <laughs> they can fill it up but all i all I'll say about cbdc is just one more thing is um you know, the Fed released their white paper on CBDCs about a year ago, and they offered a comment window to the public. Um, and there was like 1,887 comments, and the comments answered like 22 questions, so they were really in-depth comments. And I read them. I read them. And um, I kind of did a very simple analysis of like, is this pro-CBDC comment or is this a negative CBDC comment? And 73%... And I was pretty generous what I considered a pro CBDC to try to like, you know, I knew I was biased, but um, I found that 73% of the, all the comments sent to the Fed were completely opposed to a CBDC. So that's, um, that's optimistic for me. Like Americans don't like CBDCs. And, um, and so that's a good thing. And that was, that wasn't just individuals. That was like major companies like Visa and, and um, JP Morgan Chase hates CBDCs, obviously. And, and all these like bankers, like for once I was like agreeing with the banks. It's like the enemy to enemy, my enemy is my friend kind of thing. <laughs> um, but everyone hates these CBDCs because they make no sense. And it's really, you know, even the Fed, I have to give them credit because they've been the most uh, conservative when it comes to CBDCs of all the central banks. They're kind of very like 
uh, I don't know what we're seeing here. Like Neil Kashgari saying like, yeah, I don't know. But it's interesting because the government is the one that's really driving it. Like the Biden administration with their executive order saying we need to be urgent with the CBDC. You know, we're, we're going to get left behind. Um, you know, we can't we can't risk losing to China and all this crap. And um, you have Congressman French Hill, who now leads the subcommittee on digital assets, the new one that was just formed. He's the same way. He's like, we need to do a CBDC. So it's coming from the government, which is really crazy because it's not really the Fed. Um, and that it fundamentally misunderstands. It's like why the dollar has remained dominant over these years. Um, they're afraid and it, they're just like, oh, we got to do this because everyone else is doing it. And that's like not a good reason to do anything. And the reason that the U.S. dollar has remained dominant globally, arguably, is the stability of U.S. law and U.S. courts' ability to enforce property rights. And a CBDC would risk infringing on property rights because you can't turn off your money anytime and all this stuff, and it could be abused. And also the dollar is backed by the, you know, the size of the U.S. economy. and It's the world's largest you know, economy by GDP. The dollar is stable value, value relative to other fiat currencies. None of that changes with a CBDC. And in fact, in my opinion, we should be thankful that China and, and these other other countries are really going deep into CBDCs because I think it's stupid technology. A permission blockchain is dumb technology. It's, it's, it's an oxymoron, right? It's, it's like using technology that's meant to be decentralized and trying to keep it centralized. And it's you know all these things. It's, it's difficult to upgrade. It's expensive to maintain. It's slower than centralized things. So we, could, we should be like, go for it. Like, you guys want to waste your time and resources? Like, totally go for it. Like, we have private se sector solutions, like Fed, uh, um, the um, real-time payment systems, uh, like faster, the faster payment system in the UK, the PIX system in Brazil. These are real-time settlement systems that fit into the traditional financial system that does it without disrupting them completely, without all the additional regulatory burdens and costs to implement a CBDC system. And so that's what we should be doing. We shouldn't get CBDC envy and look at these other countries and be like, we got to do it too. That's dumb. And, and so um, it's just interesting where the pressures are coming from because it shows you why, like, why does the government love the CBDC? Like, and the Fed doesn't. That, that's, it's just like, that's what, it always comes back to control to me. And they just kind of want more control, more surveillance. And all these other reasons why they say to do it, it just falls apart when you really look into it and look at the facts. Yeah, I think that was very well said. I liked what you talked about earlier about how very small segment, I guess, of the population, whether it's like banks or Visa or individuals, most people oppose the idea of CBDC. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think that the, there's kind of like a, an analogy to Bitcoin there that I've personally been thinking for a while. A lot of people, like obviously Bitcoiners are, and Corey has talked about this, I guess, like the intrinsic minority is what you guys are trying yeah. to get to with Bitcoiners. I would say like we definitely haven't reached like that capacity of Bitcoiners yet, which obviously is a goal for, for you guys and for me too. Um, but the small group of Bitcoiners that exist are extremely passionate about Bitcoin, right? Like we're willing to probably vote for the most pro, like if there's a non pro Bitcoin candidate, like we're probably going to vote against him against like every other candidate. Yeah. Whereas I think you have like people that are like very passionate about Bitcoin and they're, you know, at very high cost going to defend it. There's not many people that are very anti Bitcoin and are going to 
defend their anti-Bitcoin stance at all costs, right? Like there's just not even like that segment of the population that ever exists. I don't really ever see it existing. What are your thoughts on that? Like, I, do you think that that's accurate I or think, not accurate? Yeah, dude, I, I think that's, I think that's very accurate. Yeah. I, you know, I guess you see it a little bit. I'm trying to think of that one Senator who just Brad, Brad, Sherman, Brad Sherman, yeah, yeah. Brad Sherman seems to really hate Bitcoin, but He's like the only one and like Elizabeth Warren, you know, yeah. whatever. Like, but there's, but yeah, I would say like, there's not like a protest on like wall street or like Washington right. DC right. where everyone's like, yeah, Brad Sherman's right. Like we should ban Bitcoin. Like he like talks and like, no one really cares. And I don't really yeah. see it ever. No one ever really caring about that. Cause it's like, if someone's holding Bitcoin, it's not really affecting you, you know? Yeah, no, totally, man. And, and I think you're right that we're not even close to being there because you know, the way Corey uh, defines it is like not just somebody who owns, you know, 100, 500 bucks or just bought it for a number go up a little bit, but somebody who actually understands what they own, um, who understands Bitcoin. Like that's what the definition of, of like a, a Bitcoiner is uh, in his piece. And um, I, I just think we're like so early still. Like, I don't know, like Croesus, uh, you know, BTC and Jesse Myers. I mean, he, he, he thinks that we're like less than 0.01% or something like that, or 0.1%. And I kind of agree with him. Like, it's still a pretty small community. Um, even when I started like thinking about guests for Swan Signal, because I took over that podcast um, a couple weeks ago, you know, I was just like listing out just people in the Bitcoin industry. And I'm like, wow, this is still a pretty small industry. Like, to be honest with you, like, I was like, wow. Um, when he put it on paper, it's it's just kind of crazy and and so we're early um there's still a lot of education to be done and that's where I, that's where i focus a lot of my attention is just education because i think the truth's on our side and it's just like people need to just figure it out and everyone figures out at the you know their own pace uh, but we can definitely help provide educational resources for them to get there faster because the times are ticking uh with these fiat currencies uh inflating away like they are and getting debased like they are. So just trying to get people like in the quote unquote life raft. Definitely hundred percent agree. Um, kind of going off of that and, and kind of taking a more broad long-term perspective, what do you think is like the long-term future of Bitcoin? Like some people talk about the idea of like hyper Bitcoinization. Do you buy into that idea? And you know, what do you think the world looks like in 20 to 50 years? Um, 20 to 50. I do buy into the idea of hyper Bitcoinization over a long period of time. I think it could take maybe longer than, than 50 years. Um, part of that is because I think Bitcoin's just a function of the environment it's in. And I'm so freaking bearish on fiat currencies. Like I just, I think they're, they are programmed to fail. Like they, they will continue to debase um, over time. And that's been my long-term thesis for years now and nothing's changed it's just grown stronger with what they're doing um kind of mismanagement of the currencies let's just say and um and so i think as that happens more and more people will choose the better money and more people will will be forced to choose the money because it'll get so bad in terms of the loss of purchasing power and and so more and more people like when merchants merchants like eventually will say no i don't accept fiat like I choose like pay me a Bitcoin. Right. And I think we will get there. I just think it, it takes a lot of time and, um, how that plays out like is anyone's guess. 
Uh, but I think I do think the fiat currencies are are, are going to zero, man. Um, when you look at the debt problems and you look at what I would just consider just like a complete disconnect um, between monetary policy and like economic reality, that they think they can just do this without any consequences. You know, this like MMT takeover um, that was kind of implemented in 2020. It's just fantasy land, man. And if you just study history, we know where this kind of ends. Um, you know, I'm not one of those guys who think it's going to end anytime soon. I think specifically the dollar, I think, can last a long, long time. Um, but I think over time, people will choose the better monetary policy. And the one that pre uh, preserves their property rights and, and censorship resistance is going to come key. I always say, uh, I think censorship resistance is such a key point of Bitcoin. It's when inflation rises, you have increased capital controls because these central banks try to trap people in those currencies because if they don't trap people in those currencies and they're using different currencies like bitcoin or stable coins whatever um that's currency substitution and they can move all the levers they want in their local currency the central banks but if nobody's using it it makes it wholly ineffective and so they try to increase capital controls increase censorship and so as inflation and debasement rises we should see more censorship and more capital controls and that's where Bitcoin's censorship resistance is really going to start to shine. And that's what I expect to happen over the next, say, five, five to ten years. And so I, I think that Bitcoin just has – it's the best money. So I think people will just uh, gradually figure that out, both because they'll get interested in Bitcoin itself. And then they'll also be like, damn, these fiat currencies are getting mismanaged like crazy. I need to find something else. Yeah, totally agree. Um I, this will probably be the last question, then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. You said fiat currencies are programmed to fail. Totally agree. I mean, they're designed to go to zero in the long run. Um, but how could Bitcoin fail? Bitcoin, um, I've always thought that you know Bitcoin is software. So I think Bitcoin could die from a self-inflicted wound kind of thing. Uh, that's always been a threat and... It does like the fact that there's so many eyeballs on the code and open source code. There's like a saying that like bugs are shallow because, you know, once so many eyes are on it, it's you don't have like a critical bug, but it's still possible, man. I don't know. What was it like 2018 where there's a bug that was caught like an inflation bug? Um, I forgot who the developer was, but he was, he did it really graciously because it was his fault. But he he identified it and publicly said about it and then fixed it. Um, but those things can happen. And so it's just software. Um, so that's how like Bitcoin can really fail. I think Bitcoin adoption could get really delayed by closing off on ramps and off ramps from like regulatory pressure. And I, it's kind of scary. Like it's, we've seen a more concerted effort recently, like in the last couple months of the financial industry, the banking industry being discriminate, uh, you know, discrimination against, broader crypto companies, you know, access to, to banking services, which is unconstitutional. Um, so you have like operation choke point type situation of cutting off, uh, Bitcoin companies and users, uh, from, from using, from buying Bitcoin or accessing Bitcoin services. And that could delay things. And you, you just, you've seen a lot of like this, uh, there's like a Metro metropolitan holding corp, like a bank, uh, announced that it's not doing crypto anymore. Um, you had the Federal Reserve deny cus, cus, uh, custodia banks application for a master account at the Fed. 
even though they did everything uh, that was supposed to do over and beyond. They still just denied it. Um, you had the FDIC, the Fed, and the OCC release like a joint statement basically saying like there's a ton of risks in crypto assets to banks. You know, make sure that you're doing the safeguards. Like they really basically saying like if you're going to do this, um, you better do it right or we're going we're gonna to come after you. Um, you had the White House release a statement recently saying the same shit with like risk of cryptos and reminding banks to do like proper safeguards. And they're really worried about like the systemic risks now after FTX. And then uh, you just seen so many things. And like, I've dealt with it at Swan where we had to advocate for pay for clients and talk, you know, with their banks and, and um, it just happens. It seems randomly like, you know, we just randomly a client would be like, yeah, our bank said something. Um, I, I remember there's this Bitcoiner on Twitter. I think her name's Alana joy. But she posted, she got like, she tried to send money from Chase to Cash App to to buy some Bitcoin. And Chase just didn't like flag the transaction and said no. And then she recorded the conversation. I, I recommend everyone listen to it, actually. She recorded the conversation with the fraud person on, on Chase, like the phone call. They couldn't give her a single reason, right? It's completely unconstitutional um, to to say you can't spend your money, especially at Cash App, because it, Bitcoin's just one product that cash app offers it's just another fintech company she could have just been using it for fiat but they just totally denied her um access you know to use her funds the way she wanted to just because it was a bitcoin company and so you're seeing more and more in this and um these discriminatory banking practices against bitcoin companies and that could delay bitcoin adoption so that's something that i'm definitely keeping an eye on um and i think congress should honestly take take an eye on that too because the banks have been getting away with this stuff, not just with Bitcoin industry. They've done it with like, you know, the gun industry. They've done it with, you know, marijuana industry. Like they, they just do these operation choke points. And so, and it, it really starves uh, entrepreneurs and companies of, of very needed capital um, because you can't really function without banking partners. Um, so at least for now, right? <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of like the one risk that I'm definitely keeping an eye on um but it wouldn't stop bitcoin right it would still it would just delay things yeah totally agree i mean i think it relates really well to our conversation on cbdc's like in a way it could delay adoption for sure it could prevent people from getting on the life raft but at the end of the day it's kind of an advertisement for bitcoin because like hey like the yeah. money that you thought you had is not actually your money you can't use it whereas this bitcoin thing you can send it to anyone, anywhere, anytime, 24-7, 365, and no one can stop you. So it's pretty cool, um, for sure. Cool. And then as far as the bugs that you brought up, I mean, definitely great points. Um, and yeah, there was like an inflation, it could have been an inflation bug, I think, in 2018, but it was patched before, like it could have even exactly. happened. It was like very, yeah. it was very like, uh, it would have been hard to actually implement from what I understand, yeah. but it obviously was patched. And I think there was an actual inflation bug in Bitcoin and like, Either it's like 2011 or 2012. Yeah, really like early someone, on. Yeah, yeah. Someone minted like a billion bitcoins, and then like they wrote, <laughs> they fixed the chain. Like this can't happen. So like even bugs, I would say like are fixable. Like they're, true. There true. could there could be like a, a a broken cryptography function, but like at that point, it's like the internet's probably worth like you can't use the internet. You can't use like your bank account online. Nuclear codes are probably out. So it's like. If the cryptography breaks, then we probably got bigger problems than just Bitcoin breaking. So it's kind of it's a, it's an interesting uh, debate. But yeah, I did, yeah, I, I think that's totally right. Agree. These are yeah. great points. I, I I attribute a pretty small probability of that, but it's definitely 
a, a possibility. But yeah, you're right. Totally agree. I agree. I agree with what you said. Totally. Um, do you have any final thoughts on, on, on Bitcoin macro, anything? And then where do you want to send the audience after this? Uh, I would just, you know, be cautious. I always just try to mentally prepare myself for anything with Bitcoin's price. Like you said, I mean, anything could happen. There could be a white swan event where some major, you know, sovereign wealth fund or central bank decides to buy Bitcoin, like who knows? And so you don't want to be on the sideline for that necessarily, but also prepare yourself for it to go back down and retest the lows. And, um, you know, I think in a longer term, like three to five years, you know, these levels would be pretty attractive in hindsight. Um, if you want to wait for like the actual bottom, I think we could see more volatility and a drop back towards those lows, um, which would offer another, uh, you know, good long-term entry point in my opinion. Um, so just be cautious, uh, you know, expect the unexpected, um, in terms of where you can find me, I, I work at, um, I work at Swan Bitcoin, like we said. So I work with the Swan private team where we, uh, service kind of high net worth individuals, businesses and institutions more. It's more of like a white glove concierge services, service services. And I, uh, I write the research. So if you're interested in that, you can reach out to me. I'm using on Twitter, uh, at Sam Calla, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. Um, and I usually just spit my thoughts out there and it's how I know you, Joe. So um, usually on Twitter, you can check out some of my work on the Swan blog as well at swan.com. So check that out. If you're interested in Swan Private, you can go to swan.com slash private to learn more about that. Um, but yeah, man, this was a really fun conversation. Thanks for uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. This was fantastic. I mean, you and Swan do great work for Bitcoin. So thank you guys. But yeah, this was a fantastic conversation. I think the audience is going to really like it.